Hello, listeners. This week is Banned Books Week, and so we're encouraging you to put something on social media in support of the American Library Association's efforts to inform the public about censorship efforts in our libraries and our schools. Banning books is one of those draconian practices that smacks of totalitarianism, and yet we are seeing it play out now so much more than in years past in the wake of recent social justice efforts. If you look at the top 10 most challenged books of 2020, you'll see that they include Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You by Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, and you'll see Speak by Lori Haltz Anderson, who is a past guest on this show. We encourage you to go back and listen to her episode titled The Enduring Power of the Books That Change Our Lives. You can search for it in our feed or online and do your part by ordering these books or other books on the banned books list and make some noise about it. Thank you. Hello, protectors, allies, conversation starters, and curious and open minds. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here today with my ever-curious co-host, Grant Faulkner. Uh, and Grant, we get to talk about an important topic for adults and kids alike today, and that's books that start conversations. Uh, but it maybe more explicitly is about books that tackle hard conversations. And I was thinking back to other interviews we've touched upon uh, this subject matter with, uh, like former guests, Lori Holtz Anderson, you know, where we talked about censorship because her books have been censored for content having to do with sexual content, even though when we talk about sexual content, in that case, we're talking about sexual abuse perpetrated onto a young girl. Uh, and we talked with Matt LaPena, who I remember wrote a scene um, that he had to fight to keep in uh, because the publisher thought that it was not age appropriate that had to do with uh, an abusive situation. And I, I think that, you know, it's so important that we look at these books that feature scenes and scenarios that kids face and then don't try to sweep them under the rug. Um, you know, because as Anastasia, our guest today is going to talk about, kids, of course, have these real life dilemmas and traumas that they're facing. And so why not confront them head on and have a space in which we can talk about them in a way that helps them to make sense of things like divorce, white supremacy, uh, and other topics that Anastasia is writing about. And so I, I just am excited about this topic in general, probably because I have a kid who's ripe for these conversations. Um, and Anastasia is going to talk to us about her series, Ordinary Terrible Things, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I love that title. It's so, I don't know, really hits it on the head. And, you know, when I, when I looked at Anastasia's books, I was reminded, too, of our interview with Mira Jacob, uh, because similar to Mira's book, Good Talk, this series is multimedia. Anastasia creates this, you know, a, a very similar, raw, almost fe unfinished feeling to some of the pages in her book. And like Mira, she uses cutouts of photos and images, and there's just a lot to look at. And the storylines are kind of contrastingly, disarmingly simple, you know, while at the same time being really profound. So it's an interesting reading experience. And a, a reading thread here is that the adults are saying one thing, but acting in a way that totally contradicts those messages. That's what's a specialty of adulthood, I think. Um, <laughs> and it's like they're saying they're fine, but they're crying or they're confusing the kid protagonist in the book with all kinds of platitudes, which is what we do when people die or get divorced. And yet, 
kids, of course, see through all of that because they're human beings. And, and, and so honest books like these, I can only imagine are a validation of a young reader's experiences about real life and real crises and ordinary terrible things. So it's very heartwarming to me that books like these are being published. And then it's just a question of whether they're finding the kids who need them. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because these are the exact kinds of books that tend to threaten some parents and guardians, uh, I think largely because they're too honest. And then a lot of people argue that kids need to be protected from conversations like these rather than meeting them head on. Uh, and in a New York Times article about her books, Anastasia is quoted as having said that parents have a tendency to either under or over expose their kids to challenges. So it's like we keep them in a bubble or we toughen them up. Um, and both approaches are designed to bypass the experience of actually being upset. Uh, I thought this was really good insight because as a parent to a 10-year-old, like I said, you know, I'm I'm probably guilty of underexposing James to things on the one hand, and yet he watches YouTube and he hangs out with friends who are probably overexposed, you know, uh, and kids who are older, of course, are telling younger kids all kinds of things. Uh, and I know parents who overexpose their kids. I see that as well. Um, and, and so you then have these alternate versions of realities or parallel versions of reality happening. And it's no wonder that we all grow up with some pretty mixed notions about how things really are. Uh, Grant, I'm wondering if there are any books that you remember growing up that exposed you or maybe while, you know, as a parent exposed your kids um, in such a way that started a conversation that would have been hard to have otherwise. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall specific books that I read with my kids, but there have been plenty of movies and because we watch a lot of movies together and and mainly movies since they became teens, actually, which is which is when all those real world issues become all the more, you know, real and I don't know, vivid and disturbing. Um, and, and I've always felt that kids can can handle way more than we give them credit for. And as you've said, they know when they're not getting the whole truth or when an adult is smoothing things over. So for better or worse. And it's a tough balancing act, but but I've leaned more into allowing them to experience more adult content actually when they're a little young. And um, that's based on my experience too, that I felt like I was ready for it. And the, the adult content I experienced when I was young was very meaningful. And so, you know, by watching shows like Euphoria or 13 Reasons Why or The Perks of Being a Wallflower, the latter two were both books to start with, by the way. You know, we watched this together when the kids were young teens and what was great about it was that we've been able to actually talk about the things that come up, like sex and drugs and rape and online pornography and suicide, the ways that people mistreat others or mistreat themselves. And we've got a story and a character, characters to refer to, which really helps us have the conversation. So I'm a big believer in letting kids, you know, see the messiness of life because life is messy and it's just better to be able to talk about it than to hide it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, it's it's funny because I was thinking about this question for myself because when I was growing up, my mom had the joy of sex in her closet, which was, you know, a, it was a bestseller, <laughs> but uh -huh. it was certainly not something that she wanted me and my brother to see. <laughs> it sold as many copies of the Bible, I believe. <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, yeah. And, and I'm sure she did not imagine that we would be, you know, like climbing on a stool to reach the top shelf 
myself to find it, but that is exactly what we did. And I just remember, you know, being obviously like titillated and mesmerized by the line drawings in that book. Um, and of course, it was very forbidden. And and yet, it, I think in some ways, it was also good for me as a kid to be exposed because the line drawings were like simple and sensuous. And, you know, it's actually like a very pro-sex book, of course. Um, and I hadn't thought about that book in such a long time. And so then I was thinking about today's episode and I went back and watched a little BBC interview with the illustrators and it was really sweet. You know, The Joy of Sex was published in 1972. Uh, and one of the things the illustrator talked about in that interview was how a real couple posed for all of those line drawings. And he said it was actually really quite lovely because they were in love and how much he admired them for putting themselves out there. Um, and obviously this was more groundbreaking then in the early 70s than it maybe would have been today. And I think I must have been around 1984 or so when I got my hands on the book. But um, ultimately, it was kind of illicit, but I think it was a genuine expression of love and kind of a good exposure to me that ended up being uh, having a little bit of a lasting impact. <laughs> yeah, I remember the joy of sex uh, well, as well. And uh, it's amazing how many of us likely learned about sex from books or from other sources than talking to parents, for instance. And um how many of our kids are likely learning about sex from YouTube or actually other sites? Because I just read an, that alarming number of kids learn about sex from online pornography. So I think the joy of sex might just be a little more preferable. But today's topic is so foundational. You know, this idea of conversations that books can start and, and parallel to that is what books can teach with or without conversation starters. You know, so I, I hope... Um, kids get their hands on important books like Anastasia's, even if the parents aren't open to those conversations. Yeah, I agree, Grant. And she has other books too, um, you know, about white supremacy. We're going to talk to her about that as well. And uh, so I, I think we'll get to the good part here and bring on Anastasia to talk about the inspiration behind this series, uh, what it's like and what it's been like to have this breakout book about whiteness that has hit a nerve in this past year. Uh, so we will be right back after this shortest of breaks. Hang tight. Hello, everybody. We are back with today's guest, Anastasia Higginbotham, and she is the White Raven award-winning author and illustrator of Divorce is the Worst, Death is Stupid, Tell Me About Sex, Grandma, and Not My Idea, a book about whiteness, all part of the Ordinary Terrible Things series, as well as the middle grade book, What You Don't Know, A Story of Liberated Childhood. And she lives in Brooklyn, and we're so happy to have you with us today, Anastasia. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. I want to start with, well, all the books are amazing, but I still want to start with Not My Idea, uh, because this is the book that's really hit a nerve in this past year, given the racial reckoning our country is going through. And yours was one of those books that writers, uh, readers, excuse me, were buying when they were looking around and trying to understand what the heck was even going on. Uh, and I'm just curious to know what that was like for you. You know, what was the experience? You know, was that the purpose of the book in the first place uh, to explain what the heck is going on in this country around whiteness and race? And was it gratifying to have people finding your book when they were looking for that thing? So gratifying. It was it was so thrilling to um, it was so gratifying is the right word for being able to have something already in hand, already ready to offer at a moment of such heartbreak and just waves of pain through our communities as people really tuned in and 
put their attention to something that had been happening all the while, but was reaching more people because because of all the circumstances of that time. But to have already made something and be confident in it and to know that that book was meant to hit nerves. And it wasn't meant to be provocative in a, in a teasing way or a taunting way, but it was meant to explode all of the emotional landmines so that people could be aware of something that is too often just stays in the unconscious and stays in, in our programming, in our conditioning, and in our, our immersion in a culture that really centers white people, centers whiteness as normal. And um, the biggest challenge is differentiating between white people and whiteness. And that's, that's where it often gets, well, it's certainly where it often gets the most distorted by people who want to misrepresent it. The people who want the information and want language and images for relating to their children about race and understanding um, the system that is at work and the design of it so that they can make choices about how they want to navigate it, they look into that and they look at the difference between whiteness as a cultural air that we breathe and white people as you know, people who can make choices to go along with or to disrupt and dismantle. Real quick, Anastasia, just for people who might not have a sense of the books whatsoever, which would sure. be some of our listeners, you know, maybe you could say like how, what your approach specifically, you know, as you're talking, I'm like, aha, I'm nodding along because I've read the books, but you know, in, in this sort of multimedia context that you've done, you know, and creating this book specifically for pretty young kids, you know, I mean, you, you tackle this really big, complex topic and I, and, and people of course were flocking to it, especially I think last year as everyone was like, oh my God, how do we talk to our kids about this subject matter? So could you just real quick uh, contextually give a little sense for our listeners of what the book is? Sure. The book is, um, uh, it starts with a child seeing over their mother's shoulder a um, a clip from a video. You know, she might be watching TV and then and there's some um, dash cam footage or uh, what's that? That body cam, that body cam stuff. Mm-hmm. So they see a police officer in a confrontation and um, they see a person who has their hands up and who is cooperating. The officer is holding a gun at them and then goes ahead and fires into the body of that person. So they witness a murder and um, the mom snaps the TV off, um, the screen off as quickly as she can. And But the reassurance for the child is um, because the mother is white and the child is white and the person who had their hands up and who was shot at by the police has brown skin, the mother says to their child, you're safe. You don't need to worry about this. And it's basically um, overriding the child's own experience, which we saw on the page illustrated. We see the child in alarm and register that something terrible has happened. So I start there and I make a book that's really just a day in the life of a child who now has questions, who has a sensation in their body of wrongness who is tuned into that sensation and confused by it because the people around them, the family members, white family members, who they want explanations from and who they expect to have some reaction, they're not reacting. The way that they're reacting is to turn away and to 
urge the child to turn away as well. And basically, they're, they're telling the child to turn away from their own instinct. And um, so the book, the narrator, stays with the child and with the child's instinct and with the child's curiosity about what happened there and what, what else is happening. And um, so it really just bears witness to the child in their pursuit of more information, really about what they're feeling and why it feels that way, and then um, what's the bigger story, what's the bigger picture, and they go to the library and they study history. So the book is called Not My Idea, and it includes the line, racism was not your idea, you don't need to defend it. You can follow your curiosity instead. And um, it's meant to be an invitation to white families and white children to see themselves as part of this and to understand how we, I'm white, are part of this and um, have choices to make, have agency in this. In the dedication, I reference an interview between Toni Morrison and uh, Charlie Rose in 1993, where she, he asked her the question, how do you feel about racism? And Toni Morrison says, how do you feel about it? White people have a very, very serious problem, and they should start thinking about what they want to do about it. Leave me out of it. And um, that really was the marching orders I needed to go ahead and make this book and, and feel my own power and opportunity and responsibility to figure out what I want to do about this disease in the culture and my own choices in relation to it. And I had a lot of, obviously, I would not take that on all by myself, but I had a lot of people in my life who were um, feeding me information and encouragement and, and helping me to rely on good sources for, for how to do this well and um, hit the mark, hit the center of the target, um, not tiptoe around not walk on eggshells, not let it be about kindness and niceness, because um, as Resma Menachem says, uh, he, he writes about racialized trauma, and um, his book has been on the New York Times bestseller list for months and months. Um, niceness is inadequate to deal with the reality of the brutality of racism. And um, so the book needed to do some heavy lifting, and it has. That is a hardworking book. It's out there doing its work. Well, you know, Anastasia, when you were talking about that, that childhood need to know, that childhood curiosity, you know, there's, there's really no stopping it, fortunately. And, and Brooke and I were, were talking about books and movies that might have been taboo to us as kids, um, and yet those were likely the places where we learned about things like sex or drugs or being gay or you named the unspoken thing that you know we weren't supposed to know about. Mm. And so I'm curious uh, for you, was there a specific book that was you know, a book or the book uh, when you were growing up that informed your experience of writing these books for kids? I can't believe I don't have an answer to that on the tip of my tongue. I might not either, right? On, <laughs> if I was asked right now, but um, I can certainly think of movies, though. Like I was, I, was yeah. I, I think of it often. Like I, the the movies that meant the most to me were the ones I wasn't supposed to see for at least a yeah. few years. You know, I love that. What are they? Can you can you name one of them? 
I was 15, and um, and these were R-rated movies, so it was um, like The Deer Hunter, uh, Apocalypse wow. Now. Even American Gigolo was in there. Um, I don't know. There were there were a, a whole list of like – I mean, there were good movies that happened to come out in 1979, so that was a good year for cinema. Yeah, um, I, I do recall when my sister – my older sister Amy saw The Color Purple in the movie theater, um, and – she was just crying and crying and crying. Um, and she had that experience. She came home and was having that experience over the next several days of like, she couldn't stop crying. And I knew that movie was important because of that, because it was so disturbing to my sister. And um, it led me to Alice Walker's writing as well. So um, that movie does, does come to mind. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm excited that, you know, your books are going potentially to be that for kids. <laughs> you know, as I was thinking about the books that informed me and, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about the series uh, because you say on your site or maybe your publisher told me that it's for kids at not this one in particular, but the whole series in general is for kids four and up. And I think you said the race one is for uh, kids eight and up. And I was struck by by it. You know, I kind of loved it. But I also imagine a lot of parents and guardians think, you know, no way is my four or five year old ready for these topics. You know, you're writing about um, divorce and death. um, And we're so predisposed to protecting our kids, you know, keeping their world safe. But as you said, and as you were describing this, this one title um, and all of your books I think are this way like the kids are having a visceral experience that does not align to the confusing messages that they're getting from the adult um, in your stories so how did you come up with all the examples you give in these books and you know has there been any specific shock of recognition from your adult readers who've confessed to being the parent that you're specifically kind of you know, calling out in these books as being confusing. Mm. I like your language for it about the alignment. Um, the child's experience is out of alignment with what they're being told. Um, yes, I have had the experience of adults and even people close to me. I don't need to share that book with my kids because our divorce was peaceful. Our divorce was, you know, I don't need to create a problem where there isn't one. You know, because the book is called Divorce is the Worst. And of course, that's not I don't believe that divorce is the worst thing that can happen to a child. But I'm doing that to be to make them laugh or to or if it was the worst for them to validate. And um, and death is stupid. You know, it's just it's meant to speak to children right where they are. And it does, you know, for the people who like it, they really love it. And for the people who don't. Yeah, it is. It's, it can be threatening because I think there's this delusion that if we mention it, we're creating the negativity around it. And, um, and that assumes that these books are not uplifting, which they, they totally are meant to be uplifting. They're not like putting up... Uh, a ribbon around something that's garbage. They're, they're not doing that, but they're, they're saying, okay, this happened. And, um, let's, let's walk through it or let's move through it. And the books really just bear witness to changes that come from, uh, divorce or death in the family. Um, things you might hear, things you might 
feel, things you might notice. And it's a way of creating some mindfulness for the child of how how real their lives are and how important their experiences are. And I don't think it depresses them at all. I think it's depressing to be a child and and have adults constantly telling you that you don't have real problems. And I'm not saying that even, you know, kids have real problems and they need to, you know, I need to help them with their problems. It's more that like, no, 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 they have real lives. They have real internal lives. And they are getting, as you say, really mixed messages. Like the, the book about sex, I mean, think about the mixed messages you got about sex growing up and that are still so much a part of our culture and the clash between it's beautiful, it's terrible, it's shameful, it's, it's, it's amazing, it's a miracle, it's disgusting. And uh, how are they supposed to f- navigate that without, you know, without some support and some validation for the fact that, look, I want to know about this. It doesn't mean I'm going to have sex tomorrow. I'm eight. I just want to know why the joke is funny. I, I want to know why your face does that. When I ask about sex, why do you get so weird? Why do you blush? What, what's happening? And um, I, I really feel like it's an honor to be, and it's, it's, a, it's bold of, to, to assert myself in that sphere and be, um, you know, when someone writes to me and says, my mother died and I shared your book with my child because, you know, they're grieving their grandmother and, you know, we're all grieving her and um, they really love the book. And like, that's right where I want to be. You know, Anastasia, maybe that's a good segue into to my topic or the question I have, which is about your style, which is one way of being present and uh, and designing the conversation. And we were reminded a bit of uh, Mira Jacobs' good talk when we were reading your books. And I was curious if you see a, a trend in book publishing right now that is honoring you know this very different style that includes illustrations and cutouts and images and photography. And I guess I'm asking if you're on trend in the world of book publishing with the style of storytelling. You know, I don't. I, I definitely love to see those trends. Um, when I like graphic novels a lot. Uh, I'm not a huge reader. I don't read a ton of books, but the ones I do read, I I might read them like two or three times in a row. So Alison Bechdel and, and Linda Berry. I mean, Linda Berry is my guiding light person. Um, So I've always followed those. And yeah, that um, good talk was, I, I just love the way those, that way of storytelling and the other thing of it is I can't do it any other way. Like my own thing. I, I tried when I first came to New York City and I wanted to be a writer. I also was like, well, maybe I should be a cartoonist. Maybe I should try to be a cartoonist. So I, I tried that and, and, and that wasn't quite how I wanted to communicate. And then I tried just, you know, essays and stories. And that wasn't really leading to much for me, I wasn't able to come through the way I needed to. And when I combined the two is the only time I've ever uh, really felt like I was coming through. So let me say it that way. I didn't, I didn't know if anyone would ever want to publish it, but I, I had stories in me and, and things I wanted to say that that's how they came through best. And so I really just honored my own process and made something that I didn't know whether anyone but me and my friends would appreciate it. 
And what does come first for you? Is it the story or the illustrations or, or do they come simultaneously like these kinds of uh, online things we see? Yeah, they come at the same time. Oh, they do. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, and, but, but in the, in terms of the process, like I'll get a scene, like a scene will come to my head. I like, I need to see the, the, um, the dad and the child in the garden, picking tomatoes, talking about the person who has died, you know, like that will come to me. And then, but I do, when I'm making a book, I start with the script and I, I, but as I'm writing the script, I start putting in the images, you know, describing the two people in the garden. You know, there's going to be a moment when this happens. There's going to be a moment when I show this. And I don't yet know how I'm going to create that image. But um, so the words come first in terms of making and then illustrations are last. Well, Anastasia, I've talked to so many people in my lifetime who either tell me about a, a, a children's book they want to write or they have lots of ideas for them. And I feel like the, the deceptive thing about children's books is that they, like most things that are short and appear simple, they're actually really challenging. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering what advice you have for folks who are aspiring to write and publish in this space. Thank you for validating that they are not easy to do. <laughs> Just because they're <laughs> shorter not. and they have fewer words. Um, you know, this is a hard question for me because I made the books because I needed the books. I needed them in my own life to heal my own stuff. And, um, and I started with scripts and then I started making pages on the grocery bags with the collage and the, um, and I, I really liked the kind of paper dolls in little environments that I make through collage. I really felt it felt real to me and it, it was having a real effect on like, on like my nervous system and on my, my mending my own heartbreak. And um, so that's where I started. And my first really important um, artistic and romantic collaboration at the, at the time, um, I came to New York city and I started an internship at Ms. Magazine. I met Jennifer Baumgartner and um, we were both at the start of our careers and we both were activists. We were both writers. We were both feminists. We were both in that world and wanted to be right at the heart of it. And, um, and we were together as girlfriends for um, off and on for a few years. And we just, we've stayed friends over the years, you know, deepening friendship. And um, my writing didn't take off. I couldn't get, couldn't get off the ground like I couldn't launch and um she did and she wrote book after book after book and was touring and going to colleges and she then you know became a publisher at the feminist press and in that time I had tried all the different ways like I just described of maybe I should tell it this way maybe I should show it this way and um by that point, by the time she had become the publisher of the feminist press, I had enough of a sense of the shape of what I wanted to do in this series, and I, I was going to try to get it published. And um, she knew she had known me all those years. At that point, it was a twenty-year friendship already, really close with each other's processes too, as as writers. Like she would send me the book before she published it and I would read it and, and give feedback. And 
And she was always super supportive of me. I was super, super supportive of her. But then when she was publisher of the Feminist Press, I was like, um, do you know any children's book publishers who I could show my stuff to? And she was like, well, let me look at it. And um, that's where it happened. She just decided, you know, let's, I think these are good. Let's do this. And then she checked with um, Drew Stevens, who has been the art director on every single book that we've made together, that Jenny and I have made together. And um, he liked them too. And, and several other people she showed them to didn't like them. They didn't like the images. They didn't like the, the idea. It was too negative. Ordinary Terrible Things seemed like a bad title. And, um, but because this, the, you know, this person whose sense of what is beautiful and what is relevant and emotional, Drew said, these are exquisite. And Jenny, that's all the confidence she needed to then just like, we went for it. So I didn't have, I don't have an agent. I didn't shop around. I mean, when I ever did try those things, they felt very, uh, I felt very on the outside of a world. Like, how do I get in there? But when people ask me, what should I do? I say, you know, write the book you want to write, make the book you want to make, and then find out who publishes books like that books that you really like, children's books, which are the ones that bring those, the kinds of books that you think are so beautiful and that are similar to yours um, into the world and then reach out to them. And, but I, you know, I don't, I don't have advice beyond that. I have, <laughs> you know, I had one conversation once between the sex book and the race book, because there was some upheaval there and there was some like, uh-oh, uh-oh, is anybody going to publish this not my idea, a book about whiteness, or is it too, is, is everybody too scared to touch it? Um, but I also just needed to get a sense of what would a larger publisher do with me. And at this point, I already had three books published. And um, they just, she was wonderful. It was one of the big ones. It was like uh, Little Brown. And she took the call from me. Um, but she was just like, you know, the fact that you sold through uh, a 5,000 print run in the first year is cool. That's amazing. But for a publisher like us, it would have had to have been 20 or 30,000. And so it just, it was very like, okay, I'm just going to stay put. And um, so I don't, I don't have a lot of good things to say. <laughs> it's good though. You know, I mean, I appreciate the backstory, Anastasia, because I mean, I, I know Jennifer too, and we published her at Seal. And it is interesting about just the interconnections. And I, I think the value that you're saying too is like, my takeaways from your story is like, you never know, you know, where someone is going to champion you, you could stay at this for a really long time and, you know, be published down the road. And I, I think the advice of looking at others and networking and just being in these spaces with other authors and other writers is absolutely the right thing to say. So okay. we, okay. we super appreciate it. And I know our <laughs> listeners will too. So, um, and, and especially thank you for writing these books and for being on the show today. Yeah. It has to matter more than anything if for, you know, to really take that on. So, well, you're welcome. And thank you for receiving me the way that you have being so generous with your questions and with listening. Thank you for being so generous with your answers. <laughs> My pleasure. We'll be right back with today's book trend.
Today, we've chosen cancel culture for the book trend because cancel culture is is on trend uh, and has been for a while. And Anastasia's books, frankly, seem like the kind of books that if they ended up in a school library, might just get canceled by some parents who felt that the content was, you know, a little bit scary. Yeah, well said, Grant, Uh, because fear is honestly what is driving cancel culture a lot of times in book publishing. I mean, you have fear on the right of progressive books and fear on the left of books that promote patriarchy or racism or that elevate authors of of accused sexual assault. Um, And I think that, you know, on the right, there is a desire to maintain the status quo. And on the left, there's a desire for accountability uh, and recognition that the status quo is not okay and has hasn't been for a long time, but regardless of what side you're on, you stand to lose something. And so you're fighting or perhaps canceling, probably why it's on trend. Yeah, I watched some of these uh, canceling stories play out and it's really fascinating. And I know you're right, Brooke, um, that there's a sense uh, that the clock has been ticking on these authors who've gotten away with bad behavior for a long time. And now folks are saying enough with that. So you have publishers canceling their very own books quite literally by pulling them or dropping the author, as was the case with the author of the Philip Roth biography or Woody Allen's memoir. And we are seeing a lot of canceling happening in the YA space for any number of transgressions more centered around sensitivity issues. Exactly. Uh, and and then on the right, uh, the canceling has as much to do uh, with the culture wars as anything. Like Dr. Seuss was never canceled, but the right made it a rallying cry trying to suggest that the left was canceling Dr. Seuss when really his estate was choosing to put some of the books that were racially insensitive out of print. Uh, and another story I listened to in Slate's What's Next podcast a few weeks ago, um, you know, the woman being interviewed was the former director of educational equity and diversity for a school district um, out on the East Coast. And she shared a story about uh, bringing a book into their school system called Stamped by Ibram X. Kendi uh, for a district-wide book club. And so the book, what it does is walks kids through the history of racist ideas. Um, and when the administrator promoted it, you know, really just to get behind it because she believed in it, she was accused of being racist against white people. And then she was canceled. You know, so it's like there are just these cases where it's like the books get canceled or, you know, a person gets canceled. And in this case, this woman eventually ended up leaving her job. Yeah, it's 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 just a very divisive time, obviously. Um, Brooke, and and to me, the takeaway from this story is to look more deeply into why books are being canceled. You know, what are folks' motivations? Who's at the root of it? What are their complaints? And I think we're going to continue to see a lot more canceling of books in the months and years to come. So it's a topic that, you know, I think requires us to, to do a lot of ongoing introspection. Which is why, even though it's complicated and problematic in a lot of ways, it is this week's book trend, and uh, some of the trends are going to be a little harder than others, but uh, keep your eyes out and just know what's happening and stay educated because it matters. Thanks, Brooke. And one trend we hope is easier, and that's listening to Right Minded every week. So please download it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Spotify, I think, is the most popular podcasting platform these days. So go there as well. And please help us out by rating us and or giving us a review. We love those. See you next week. 